the business of culture, the culture of business, media and tech, markets, foreign affairs, creatives, authors, full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. That said, it could still be very nasty. You know, this is a a property-driven crisis. And we have seen uh, in the Western world how nasty things can get when you have property in the mix and a decline in, in the value of real estate. It will be a different crisis, but that doesn't make it any less of a crisis. The knock on emerging markets is that they can only be as healthy as China, the voracious consumer of their commodities. What happens, though, after emerging market equities have experienced 15 years of wild underperformance, indeed, they're calling it a lost decade and a half, versus the United States, only now for China to experience its most challenging economy in decades? Can the rest of the developing world pull off some sort of self-determination? Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com. You can follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can DM me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. Joining me is Alice Fullwood. She writes about Wall Street for The Economist and co-hosts one of my favorite shows, The Money Talks Podcast. We're going to be talking about China's travails, emerging markets writ large, uh, the broader reshuffling of the developed versus developing world order. How are you? I'm great, Raven. Thanks for having me. I don't have to tell you how many times I'm I'm such a fan of yours. You have uh, institutional investors on your show. You have academics. You really uh, deconstruct things in a in a really great way. It's a it's a weekly must listen for me. Uh, that's very kind of you. Uh, yeah, no, I mean we we have fun making the show, so I, I'm I'm thrilled that you you like to listen to it as well. Alice, I have a big cosmic question. One of the most successful emerging markets in history, and certainly in recent history, and you've covered no shortage of it, is China. It has taken a record number of people out of poverty, has really parlayed itself from an agrarian economy, a backwater, a place of uh, you know intense central planning, even though it's still centrally planned, into uh, what's about to become the second most you know, the, the, maybe the most powerful economy on the planet in purchasing power terms or whatever it is sometime this century. But it is struggling in a way that it has not struggled in the modern kind of world trade organization period. Talk to me about that. Yeah, this is a sort of a great question. You know, as you pointed out, uh, in, in 1978, when China sort of joined the global economy, uh, its economy was about a tenth the size of America's uh, and uh, it, its people... Um, uh, as you sort of 90% of them lived in in, in poverty uh, over the past sort of 50 or so years, its economy has expanded to be about about 75% uh, of the size of America's and uh, and now sort of average living standards in China are about about a fifth of, of the US. So uh, wow. so a, a hugely successful sort of 50 year period for the world now the world's second largest economy, but. In recent months um, and and really over the past sort of few years several things have started to go sort of quite badly wrong for China's uh, economic um, uh, economic outlook. And, you know, obviously sort of it, it was affected by COVID in the same way as everyone was. Um, it had very draconian zero COVID policies. And at the beginning of this year, when it finally liberated uh, the, the economy and its people from, from those policies, 
the perception was that there would be this huge boom in in Chinese economic output, akin to what's happened in the rest of the Western world. You know, this revenge summer of spending and people going out um, and investing. Um, and you know, there's been such a a, a roar in in Western economies um, post COVID. People assumed China would be the same, um, and that's not what's happened at all. Uh, instead. It was sort of very unprepared for for new variants of the virus. It hadn't vaccinated enough people, so uh, those have really put a dampener on people going out and about. There have been huge issues in its property sector, um, which you know, property is a huge part of the Chinese economy. Uh, they owe about sixteen percent of GDP of Chinese GDP's worth of debt. Various sort of large uh, property developers are struggling or defaulting on their debts, um, and that's becoming a real issue for the economy. And the economy is sort of sharply slowing down. Uh, it only grew uh, at around sort of 4% of the last quarter, which is pretty remarkable when you consider that America is growing at closer to 6%, according to most prominent estimates. And while the rest of the world is sort of facing, you know, if anything, much too high inflation, uh, China actually is now facing deflation. So consumer prices... Well, Alice, sees on this point, it's still growing. I mean, we're not talking about a recession, much less a hard landing yet. Maybe if you consider the rate of growth, it's clearly not growing at or near the double digits and what it miraculously got used to over the past 25 or 30 years. But I don't understand. It's it's growing, but not enough to keep this gigantic public-private machine going. I mean, what's what's the metaphor in your head? Because broadly, I don't know where the state stops and the private sector starts in earnest. Yeah, I think that's a, a great point, uh, because a lot of China's problems seem to come from essentially sort of policy mistakes that the Chinese government is making. So the sort of the, the zero COVID mishap, not getting enough people vaccinated, that was a huge policy error. Um, they obviously have, um, you know, one of the reasons that China has been able to keep growing so quickly, uh, even as uh, it's, it's become wealthier, is because it's kept sort of loosening monetary policy, allowing private companies or, or as you say, sort of public-private uh, uh, partnership style companies to pile on more and more debt. Um, and it, it, it's not really doing that this time around. It hasn't cut interest rates as much as some people expected. Um, and it's not sort of stepping in to sort of bail all of these sort of struggling property companies out of, of the predicament they find themselves in. So a lot of the reasons that China seems to be slowing down are either sort of policy mistakes or choices that the government is making. And I guess that gets to your point, which is that you know, so much of its economic trajectory depends on, on what the party wants and, and is trying to achieve. What is so particular about housing and the, the property fetish in China? I know that it's not clearly the stock market remains a backwater. There are certain distortions. There are share classes that foreigners and locals can't buy. Uh, we're going to get into a broader stock market discussion, but it's a savings culture for people who do have disposable income. They're used to saving it at very little uh, interest rate, I think by government fiat or, or whatever that might be over there. But yet, and yet, Property is something that is underscored, and especially in sharp relief now that we're talking about the failure of major developers and property-intensive banks. What is it specifically about uh, the real estate dream and uh, the Chinese emerging middle class? Yeah, it's a good question because it's not uh, entirely clear sort of how um, how this this sort of status quo came to came to be um, in terms of sort of everyone thinking that that sort of real estate was the absolute sort of must have for uh, for their sort of own personal investments. But in general, some of the sort of ways that the property market in China is structured that um, that are causing some problems are that a lot of developers um, will build uh, will build buildings um, on sort of advanced uh, money. So 
whenever someone in China buys an apartment, they typically buy uh, an apartment uh, in a sort of future building. And then the developers use that that money to create, to build sort of whatever projects they're working on at the moment. So it's actually a lot of them are running into to trouble uh with the the sort of being able to deliver the apartments that they've promised to make um and a lot of the the sort of property that they have they have developed is is not necessarily sort of indesirable or 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 areas that are selling that particularly well um and so you have seen sort of a huge sort of creation of of you've seen a lot of creation of uh, apartments that um that really are just sort of wasted uh, wasted capital expenditure from these companies um how does that how does that buck or yuan stop? Explain that for me, because here in the United States, you have stress tests, you have uh, distressed properties, you have non-performing properties. It would recourse back to the bank. I don't understand if you kind of if you build it, they will come. Uh, I understand the construction jobs, the the cranes going up. You have that crazy stat that China coming out of the Great Recession consumed more concrete in three years than the United States did in a hundred years. I had Jim Chanos, the China skeptic hedge fund manager, deconstruct that for me in 2015. I still can't get my mind around that. I mean, if you think about the Hoover Dam and the interstate highway system, how is that even possible? And yet China does it. It builds ghost cities, high-speed rail, bridges to nowhere. But you have to have uh, an end customer. You have to have an end kind of result, whether it's a mortgage or, or cash flow coming back to the banks, unless you willingly, as the government, suspend disbelief. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, you're right about this. I mean, the 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 problem is um, that there that so much of investment, so much of the sort of share of uh, uh, GDP that is investment growth, has been in property uh, in China. It's something like a third, which is which is far higher than it is um, sort of anywhere else um, uh, in the rest of the world. And so you've had sort of this huge capital investment in property uh, and construction in general. And the the problem is now that there just there basically is is not sort of sufficient demand from Chinese people to uh to to satisfy um uh that investment and 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 for it to be able to sort of keep growing which is one of the reasons why why growth is slowing down in terms of sort of how you can get into this um this situation uh, you know in in general when many of these investments are either explicitly or implicitly underwritten by uh, governments you can get this kind of uh, extreme malinvestment uh, that it's much harder to get um, in, in other parts of the world where that, that those sort of guarantees aren't uh, aren't in place. Now, I'm looking at the stock market performance if you want a kind of a barometer. And of course, there isn't full transparency and there are ADR issues and everything else. But iShares China large cap ETF has round tripped effectively back to where it was in 2006. And we know that China has grown enormously since 2006. The world has changed enormously since 2006. But to think a portfolio of Chinese blue chips, including Alibaba, Tencent, China Construction Bank, Baidu, NetEase, Industrial and Commercial Bank of China, all of this has largely in aggregate been dead money. That's pretty breathtaking. Yeah, you know, and it's, it gets to another of the sort of potential policy mistakes that the Chinese government has made, which is the sort of huge crackdown on tech companies and tech uh, entrepreneurism uh, that they they sort of carried out uh, um, over the past few years. Um, that has really 
uh, help sort of fuel some of the uh, the, the decline um, in in share prices there, um, and it you know it gets again to these sort of these policy errors that that the Chinese government are making. Um, I do uh, I do sort of uh, point out again all the caveats that you have, which is that the stock market is a sort of a, a much smaller fraction or, or much less representative of the of the Chinese economy uh, than than the American one is. Uh, but I agree, it's sort of it's pretty remarkable how how far back uh, share prices have have fallen in China. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Alice Fullwood. She's Wall Street correspondent with The Economist based out of New York. Alice co-hosts the indispensable podcast, Money Talks, which I fanboy over on social and an email to her all the time. Uh, I got to ask you, stepping back, uh, another cosmic question from this, because I'm noticing that China and Xi Jinping are out there reasserting the uh, diminished brand equity of the BRICS. Now, remind me, Brazil, Russia, India, China was a big, and and to a certain extent, South Africa, the BRICS, was a big rallying cry for emerging market investors back when people invested in emerging markets. I'm thinking 20 plus years ago. uh, Was it uh, Jim O'Neill at Goldman Sachs or someone who coined Brazil, Russia, India, China? It's going to be their century. They're going to be huge trends that come out of this. But we know that at least Brazil has had more than a lost decade. Russia has sent itself back several decades after the the various punitive, you know, the sanctions following and the isolation following the invasion of Ukraine. India has its own issues, but it's still a grower. We're talking about China. And broadly, again, emerging markets have been dead money since at least 2007 now. So why would anybody come out and reassert this at this time? Well, it's interesting that you sort of point out um, the, the sort of dynamic since 2007, because it it truly has been um, just a remarkable run for American equities in particular. Um, since the sort of global financial crisis, uh, the returns that are that have been posted in the U.S. have uh, have resulted in in essentially going from sort of forty percent of the the world stock market to sort of closer to uh, closer to two thirds. It's been sort of so. I I, I guess my, my question is I don't know whether it's it's how remarkable a run the U.S. has had that it's making everyone else look bad, or whether whether everyone else is is sort of uh, has messed things up. There definitely have been some sort of some issues or, or strategic errors uh, in in policy in some of the uh, the BRICS, which I think have held uh, the sort of ex-China BRICS back uh, somewhat. Obviously, China, as we've discussed, had had a, a superb run, um, at least in, in sort of economic growth, and now appears to be be struggling. But I, but my, my take is that I think it's actually sort of American exceptionalism that are, that is making everyone else sort of look bad than it necessarily is that everyone else is, has, has really messed things up. And unpack that for me. Even within American exceptionalism, we have companies such as Caterpillar and GM and uh, let's say Yum KFC do a decent amount of business to China and the emerging consumer class there, but uh, the story is always that China disproportionately exports to the United States. Right. So, you know, I think within the sort of American exceptionalism over the past decade, uh, it has been um, the sort of big tech companies in particular that have driven a, a lot of that uh, out. Yeah, many many companies worth at least a trillion dollars now, which would have been unthinkable even a decade ago. Yeah, exactly, and um, and. In particular, this year, markets have really been uh, uh, sort of ginned up by those sort of the recovery in those big uh, tech companies. The interesting thing no. about sort of the companies y- you mentioned is, is I guess a lot of uh, American sort of manufacturing companies um, have. You know, they have attempted to sort of break into China and export more to China um, because it has been growing so quickly. Um, 
there is a sort of, uh, to an extent, obviously, uh, now a decoupling going on between the US and China uh, that might make that sort of growth trajectory for some American companies a little more difficult to pull off. Will you explain, if you tried to game out with some of your sources, what a true hard landing in China would look like for the United States? I remember there was an interesting uh, Grant's interest rate observer back in 2011 or 2012. I'll have to contact Jim Grant and get a hold of it that would play back then the benign effect to the United States consumer in terms of the pullback in commodity prices. Yes, there would be a shock in terms of our treasury holdings if China had to liquidate some of that. But on balance, it wouldn't be so catastrophic for the United States. I mean, maybe this is pre-WTO thinking back when oil in the United States nominally would trade at a band of maybe, you know, 10 to $30 a barrel. And now it's closer to, you know, 40 to $130 a barrel. And, and we're romancing a, a kind of a lost time. Yeah, I mean, I think to an extent you can see that uh, a sort of slowdown in Chinese economic growth clearly is not catastrophic for America from what's happened this year already. You've had a pretty sharp slowdown in Chinese growth, although, as you point out, it's sort of not shrinking or or in recession. Uh, But you had a pretty meaningful slowdown in Chinese growth at the same time as you've had a sort of a a revving up of the American economy, uh, which really has sort of defied all expectations to keep growing uh, enormously quickly this year. Um, That said, you know, China is a much bigger part um, in sort of sheer output terms of a, of the global economy than it was um, uh, than it has ever been. Uh, it's now sort of a um, uh, roughly sort of a tenth of, of of global economic output, and so even just mechanically, if you go from from that sort of tenth of global economic output growing at sort of six to seven percent, and instead it's growing at sort of two to three or something, uh, might be a sort of a, a bad scenario, uh, or or perhaps sort of you know, even worse than that, if you've got a sort of really, um, really nasty hard landing, uh, if the sort of property uh, dynamics go really awry and the government doesn't doesn't do anything to sort of uh, step in and try to, to fix things, then obviously mechanically that will have a sort of pretty big impact on, on global growth. Whether it's enough to sort of slow America uh, down uh, in a sort of uh, a really nasty way, uh, I, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't necessarily think that that's the, that's the likeliest scenario, but, uh, but, it, but it obviously will have an impact. Now, Alice, once upon a quarter century ago, there was an Asian and global financial crisis that took down Thailand, Malaysia, the Philippines, a bunch of people sneezed in Brazil and South American economies, and you had a bigger risk of default in Argentina. And it was a catastrophic time before emerging markets had another boom to start the century when the United States uh, was floundering its stock market at the very least. Why haven't we seen a hard landing in the modern era for China? It seems like some, we do have hard landings in the United States in the evolution of every emerging market, hot or small or big. You have panics, you have stock market crashes. Is it what I don't fundamentally understand? Is it that Beijing can just keep printing money and funneling it into property or other uh, job making, New Deal type things to forestall? the kinds of, you know, spikes in unemployment that you see in other economies when there is a financial crisis. Yeah, so the big thing you have to remember when we're talking about China is that sort of fundamentally it's it's integration into international capital markets is very different than a lot of the countries that um that we talked about uh with the sort of 1998 uh Asian uh financial crisis. So Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, etc., they all had open capital accounts, uh, fixed currencies, um, and they would, um, you know, use monetary policy or use their interest rates to sort of manipulate their currencies to, uh, to, uh, to those pegs. Um, 
China does have a sort of a, a fixed or sort of roughly fixed um, uh, currency, but it can manipulate interest rates as it wants because it has this sort of closed capital account. So the dynamics that really uh, sort of crashed the economies in, in Thailand, Malaysia, uh, etc. in 1998, there was too much sort of expansionary policy. They ran big current account deficits. Um, uh, they ran big fiscal deficits. Um, that started to put pressure um, because of the sort of mechanics of how current account deficits work because you have a sort of net capital uh, leaving more more spending on exports than that sorry more spending on imports than there is uh, on exports Um, all of those dynamics eventually weigh on that peg Uh, they burned through their foreign exchange reserves their their pegs broke um, even though they were sort of raising interest rates um, through the roof to try and combat that Um, that's not something that applies to China China is husbanding so much American cash foreign stock foreign dollars, uh, euros. It has been such an aggressive net exporter to the United States for decades that that is money that it could keep banking. Right. So what you saw in in places like Thailand in 98 is that you had this massive spike in interest rates, a huge rush of capital out the door that crashed investment. It it sort of crashed the local economy um, and was, you know, extremely catastrophic. Um, As you say, sort of those things don't really apply to China. Capital can't leave uh, really, uh, uh, certainly not easily. Um, and it does have sort of more control over uh, its exchange rate and its interest rate policy than those uh, those countries do. And it, it doesn't have those sort of capital uh, outflow problems. And so the problem that China faces for sort of its, its economy and its sort of potential sort of any financial crisis, that they're entirely sort of locally determined. So if there is a sort of Chinese financial crisis, economic crisis, it will look very different than the sort of catastrophe that struck uh, the rest of Southeast Asia uh, sort of, you know, just under 20 years ago. That said, it could still be very nasty. You know, this is a a property driven crisis. And we have seen uh, in the Western world how nasty things uh, can get when you have property in the mix um, and a decline in in the value of of real estate. Um, So, it will be a different crisis than other emerging markets have faced, but that doesn't make it any less of a crisis. Full disclosure, stay with us. This show podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link, please subscribe, is fulldradio.com. Again, fulldradio.com. You could catch us on all the social media handles at fulldradio. My DMs are always open. And if I can remind you that we have some huge Live shows coming up at the U of R, including James Beard recognized chef Sonny Boesia of Leja, NPR Morning Edition Steve Inskeep. We're going to have the president of MSNBC, Rashida Jones. And in December at the University of Richmond's Maudlin Center, Secretary Pete Buttigieg, Transportation Secretary. Free admission. Please do follow us at Full D Radio on all the social media handles for ticket information. If you're just joining us, my guest is Alice Fullwood. She is the Wall Street editor and correspondent for The Economist. She's co-host of the Money Talks podcast, which I love. We're talking about China in the emerging market world order and broadly the the state of emerging markets with or without China. I have to ask you, you were explaining beforehand mechanically how a uh, crisis could be localized uh, within China, uh, this behemoth, uh, which has various other capital controls and peculiarities that small Asian economies did not have, let's say in the late 90s. What is the big source of cash? Are they are they effectively and explain this for a lay a lay listener, a lay audience? Are they cookie jarring all the foreign reserves that they get from this uh, overflow of exports to just throw money at the problem? If there is an incipient crisis such as the financial crisis, they can build bridges, they can build 
ghost cities. They can build high-speed rail and keep people employed and not as restive as they otherwise might be if unemployment spikes. Yeah, so in terms of sort of where the uh, the, the government gets its sort of capital from, I guess as we have discussed, it has had sort of net capital um, inflows because there's there are so many exports. Um, and uh, it sort of it has stockpiled foreign exchange reserves. Um, it holds a huge share of, of US treasuries. It's not so much that it's sort of spending that cash on these projects as it is, if you think about sort of the constraints on a government's ability to sort of print money uh, and uh, and sort of borrow, um, in general, it's sort of faith in the local currency. So whether or not sort of people um, believe that your sort of lo- local currency will continue to have value. And because there is this sort of huge capital backstop in the form of foreign exchange reserves and the form of the the sort of the the sort of vast pile of treasuries that it owns, um, the Chinese government can borrow pretty aggressively and can print uh, a lot of money uh, without necessarily um, that undermining faith in the value of its currency. And so, you know, that that is what in part gives it the flexibility to sort of really ride to the rescue um, in economic crises and sort of um, rack up uh, more debt. It does seem that this time around, though, things are different. In general, that has been the playbook that China has followed um, in the past. You know, whenever uh, the economy has slowed, whenever... Um, it's appeared that some sort of state-owned enterprise or enterprises that are close to the to the party have got into trouble. It sort of, in general, has been happy to sort of lend to them and sort of keep kicking the can down the road, keep things afloat. This time around, that doesn't seem to be what the government is wanting to do. And in general, that is a policy choice that is 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 better than the alternative, from my perspective at least, because you shouldn't, um, you know, if you if you kick the can down the road with these sort of, uh, especially with some of its property issues, you are only going to make the the problem worse. It's it's interesting that they've made this choice at this sort of moment in time, though, because it, in general, it's not been what the Chinese uh, Communist Party has done in the past. But for whatever reason, they have chosen not necessarily to sort of bail a lot of these companies out uh, in the same way that they have done in the past. How does a failure, how does institutional failure in China even happen? Do you see bank runs? Do you see uh, do you see them padlock these half-finished condominium towers? I, I wonder at what point it goes from being institutional to being mom and pop and word gets around and people are demanding their cash. You know, I, I'm trying to game it out in my head because we've seen it happen in kind of micro situations and regional unrest and provincial unrest, but we haven't seen anything akin to a kind of a Lehman Brothers reckoning with a country as large as China. Yeah, so the closest we got to this was when uh, when Evergrande was sort of struggling um, a, a few months ago, you started to see um, the, the makings of a, of a protest, essentially, which was that that some sort of regular regular people in China, uh, the sort of mom and pops that you referred to, stopped paying uh, their sort of advanced payments on the uh, the properties that, that Evergrande was supposed to be building for them. Um, and that was because they feared, uh, because it was in so much financial trouble, that those properties would never um, come to fruition, uh, which, um, you know, is that given how much things have sort of deteriorated um, over recent months is, is probably not a sort of bad bet. Calculation, um, yeah. Yeah. Does it even make sense to nationalize somebody like a Nevergrande or uh, China's Country Garden? I mean, in the like I asked before, where does the state end and the private sector truly begin? I mean, effectively, if they're borrowing at state effectively risk-free levels or, or close to risk-free levels, if 
they're kind of quasi public institutions almost that if, if is, is China is Beijing just playing a game to say that, no, these are banks that are out on their own. We're cutting them loose. Yeah, I think it's, you know, as we sort of mentioned earlier, the property sector owes debts um, worth about 16 percentage points of, of Chinese GDP. Uh, obviously, that is a, a large number, but it's not so large that it would be impossible that um, the sort of Chinese government could assume that debt and um, and, and essentially sort of um, uh, get the property uh, sector sort of out of the, the sort of, or at least sort of partly out of the troubles that it that it finds itself in now. I think the problem is uh, is potentially it you know, what the public perception of, of something like that might be. Obviously, you know, government bailouts of financial institutions in 2008 in, uh, and nine in America were um, were extremely unpopular and, and led to a sort of a, a level of sort of distrust and um, stepping back from from sort of trust in institutions um, in America in a way that was it, it's sort of still still pretty, um, pretty damaging. So, you know, if you're sort of looking at the the, the American experience uh, in China, I think there are lots of reasons why you might want to be sort of more cautious about taking sort of such sweeping uh, sweeping measures to to sort of bail out these property companies, especially if if you know the the property companies sort of get um, get um, their problems fixed, but you're still expecting Chinese people to sort of pay um, pay up on all of the sort of th- products that they've bought from these companies. Um, you know, th- that kind of rescue could be extremely unpopular. Alice, one of the knocks I've always heard on uh, you know on emerging market investing. There's a whole school of thought, including the late Jack Bogle, that said, just invest in the S&P 500. It's transparent and international enough. You get foreign exposure in the United States, liquidity and transparency and fungibility. The knock, uh, the bigger knock is that a lot of these emerging and frontier markets, if I think about Argentina and soybeans, if I think about Brazil, if I think about the Philippines, if I think about uh, much of Asia, uh, even you know swaths of the Middle East or Sub-Saharan Africa and frontier market land, they're only as good as China's economy. If China is not the buyer of size, for example, of Peruvian copper, then Peru's economy will suffer. If China is not there buying certain wares or uh, its factories are not full, you're not going to see the factories full in Vietnam or the Philippines. Do you do you tend to buy that? I mean, certainly uh, the correlation here with China's woes and emerging markets, they seem to sell off together. Yeah, I mean, there definitely is a lot of correlation between what's going on in China and what's going on uh, in particular in Southeast Asia, uh, perhaps slightly less so sort of places like uh, Brazil and, and Latin America. But in general, EM has tended to move together. I do wonder the extent to which um, that will necessarily be the case with this sort of problem in China, because as we've talked about, um, it is a local problem uh, that is sort of causing a lot of China's economic pain. It's partly its COVID policies. It's partly this property uh, crisis. And although, you know, places like Vietnam, places like Singapore, uh, Malaysia, etc., they will see their economies struggle if uh, China is growing more slowly. Um, they actually don't have the same kinds of uh, economic problems at all uh, as China does. In general, there hasn't been this sort of massive leveraging up, especially property-based leveraging up in a lot of uh, those Southeast Asian countries. And to an extent, uh, they sort of have slightly more sort of idiosyncratic economic stories going on. So yes, there will be a correlation. Uh, I don't know whether it will be uh, one, essentially. I think that it, it, it might be significantly less than that. And therefore, you can get some sort of differentiated exposure by buying into sort of potentially their sort of a, a local stock markets instead. On your point about whether or not there's sort of any point 
at all investing in EM if you already get exposure through S&P 500. And as Jack Bogle said, you know, it, you're probably better off just investing in, in America. I guess the question I have is, People already know, you know, all of the advantages of American markets, essentially, that, you know, you do have proper rule of law and you're not going to get your sort of money confiscated um, if you if you put it in a sort of local American uh, st- stock market. You know, all of those things should already be priced in and therefore American stocks should be more expensive. And if you look at what's happened over the past, um, in particular, sort of 15 years or so since the global financial crisis, there has been this huge expansion in multiples in the US that hasn't been the case elsewhere. So essentially, if you buy American shares now and you don't buy emerging markets or you don't buy other indices, what you're doing is paying uh, an even higher premium for that decision. And that may be something that you're sort of very comfortable with doing. But uh, there was a great paper from AQR um, uh, published by uh, Cliff Asnes a few months ago, which... Yeah, and you had Cliff Asnes on the show and you kind of almost, you you almost got to this. And I remember (laughs) that he said something to the effect of, I remember when people were laughing me out of the room the last time, you know, Y2K and the dot com and the mega cap fetish of the year 2000. And it was a time of vindication after that for emerging markets and smaller companies and, you know, low valued companies. But uh, the longer this persists, the more people are going to say that this is just the new normal. Forget about emerging markets. Right. So, But the the point that they made in in this sort of most recent paper is if America had outperformed the rest of the world because its fundamentals were better, because its companies' profits were growing more quickly, because its economy was growing more quickly, then you might think that that could repeat. You might think there's something sort of special about America that means that sort of companies can grow more more quickly, uh, uh, become more profitable in the US. Sort of innovation, perhaps, is, is sort of just better here. But the outperformance has been mostly driven. And I, I the exact stat escapes me, but it's something sort of north of 70%. Um, by expanding multiples. I remember by expanding you cited multiples. it. But, right. Right. So it's just people paying more for access to American markets. And that historically is much less likely to repeat itself. So that would imply that from here on out, that the best you could hope for is, is sort of equal performance because people have have baked that premium in, that sort of premium of access to America into American share prices already. Um, so, uh, so, I mean, AQR in particular are, uh, are, are bullish on emerging markets relative to the US. Um, but, you know, sometimes it takes a while for those stories to work themselves out. Alice, in closing, how long can you forestall a true kind of economic reckoning? Again, I'm taking the example of the United States, but if you look at every emerging market in its history, there have been various panics, stock market swoons, bank runs. If we look at the United States just since the crash of 87 and the savings and loan crisis and Orange County's failures and uh, long-term capital, and you know, these things have just become the price of admission. And we go through them and they're certainly scary. I remember covering Wall Street at Business Week during the financial crisis, but we come out of them. I can't understand how a centrally planned economy of the size of China keeps uh, avoiding that. You could keep throwing money at the problem. You can dodge a pandemic. You can dodge property busts and the like. But it seems like some part of me is saying that the ultimate reckoning is only going to be more painful. Yeah. And that has been, I mean, that is essentially also my opinion. I too have been sort of essentially sort of uh, looked agog at the Chinese economy over the past sort of uh, 20 plus years at his cruise through sort of every crisis that has felled other other nations and, um, and you know, most of the globe um, essentially unscathed. And it's been sort of really remarkable to watch. And for a while, people sort of had the question, well, well maybe they're just sort of fudging the numbers. And that certainly can't explain sort of all of what's gone on. But I do 
essentially sort of have the same perception as you, which is that there has to be a reckoning at some point. And I think the sort of news flow that we've seen um, this year suggests that sort of perhaps some of that reckoning uh, is, is finally happening for China. Alice Fullwood covers Wall Street for The Economist and is co-host of Money Talks, which is The Economist's uh, wonderful podcast on economics. It's a joy having you on. I love listening to you and I hope you'll come back on. Anytime, Robin. And I love listening to, uh, to your show as well. So thank you so much for having me on. Uh, I'll, I'll make sure to catch this episode. <laughs> Full disclosure, stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link, please subscribe, rate and recommend us is fulldradio.com. If you are just joining us, I was discussing China and emerging markets with Alice Fullwood of The Economist. Joining me is Vivian Lynn Thurston. She is a partner and portfolio manager with William Blair. Um, she's associated with the emerging markets growth strategies, the China growth strategies, emerging markets outside of China growth strategies. Um, separately, she's founder and chairman of the board of the Chinese Finance Association of America. How are you? Very good. Thank you, Robin. Vivian, I've always had a question about emerging markets broadly, and there's a stat that I want to cite today that kind of blew my mind a little bit. It was from Charlie Bellello. He posts these amazing charts on Twitter. Over the last 15 years, the Standard & Poor's 500 Index, which is the United States' big benchmark, has gained over 360% of total return versus 58% for, let's say, a, a basket of the world excluding the United States and just 33% for the MSCI Emerging Markets Index. You can say that emerging markets have had a loss 15 years. In fact, Charlie Bellello notes that this is the longest cycle of U.S. outperformance that we've ever seen. Would you call this a busted or dead asset? Yeah, first of all, what you just quoted is exactly the fact. Uh, I cannot dispute that. Um, but I will kind of add a few points to explain maybe what's happening about all the divergence yeah, yeah. between different asset classes. Uh, so U.S. equity is definitely the best performing asset class in the last 15 years. And one of the biggest backdrop of this uh, performance, in my view, is because of a very low interest environment. And this outperformance of U.S. equity started after GFC. And we know that we've been on this uh, low interest after environment. After the global financial crisis exactly. of 2007 so global, 2009. Right. Exactly, exactly. So in a low interest environment, you see massive liquidity coming into the system. And so U.S. as the biggest capital market, there's no doubt that across all asset classes, whether public equities, private equities, venture capital, fixed income, they all gain this type of liquidity support. And therefore, there's one big technical support to the U.S. equities outperformance, in my view. But and Vivian, that kind of liquidity has traditionally helped some of the riskiest assets. And I would think emerging markets looking back that they or beneficiaries, kind of a rising tide would lift those boats especially and send money sluicing into other economies seeking, you know, returns. Yeah, it depends on the differentiation of differential between those uh, interest rate environment as well. And I would say since global financial crisis, uh, because U.S. interest rate becomes so much lower and the gap getting much bigger versus foreign countries, not just about emerging countries, also developed countries outside the U.S. And that, I think, shift the dynamic to some extent. So theoretically, what you say is correct. But emerging markets are always the derivative beneficiary uh, of the increased uh, liquidity. So when you see abundant kind of investment opportunity within your home country, like U.S. in this case, you will first focus on your home country. And then you look around additional liquidity where you can put the money in. Uh, so I do think the technical factor does play a role here uh, in the last 15 years. So look forward, 
Are we going to be in this low interest rate environment? Probably not, right? Because we already see the interest rate rising in the last couple years. And so there's another interesting period I can quote for you. From yes. 2001, after the 911 and the tech bubble burst, to global financial crisis during that yeah, about that was seven, our lost decade in emerging exactly, markets, right? Exactly, exactly. Of course, there's a big uh, also fundamental support during that frame time time frame was uh, China was rising, uh, and then the globalization was really in so seize, full seize on that point right now. China was added to the World Trade Organization back in 2001. Am I right? Yes. So that was Around a kind that, of yeah. that was an inflection moment. Prior to that, Congress used to debate most favored nation trading status, human rights. Do we do this? Do we extend it? And it's been, as we've noted with Alice Fullwood, a record number of people taken out of poverty and brought into the lower middle class, a record industrialization, it becoming uh, factory to the world, uh, the iPhone, the iPod, many form factors just wouldn't exist without this. You think about the EV bubble or um the amount of concrete, as you saw, that was used at, in China coming out of the global financial crisis is breathtaking. The question I'm sure you get asked all the time is, aren't all of these, most of these emerging markets, I visited Peru and looked at the copper industry. I looked at Argentina mm. and soya beans. I looked at sub-Saharan Africa and rare earths. Aren't they only as good as the demand that emanates from China? Yeah, first of all, that's, in my view, going forward, that's no longer the key driver of emerging countries' growth. It was, I would say, in the last couple of decades until probably 2015, when the commodity super cycle ended. And this key driver was because China is no longer this uh, economy f dependent on this uh, heavy fixed asset investment or infrastructure spending investment, uh, because it, all the infrastructure developments already took place. The high the highway is built. The you know so when that commodity cycle ended, emerging markets growth, in my view, shifting to, towards more domestic economy-driven kind of a driver, which one key element is rising middle-class consumption. So that again, the question is: all, a lot of a lot of American investors are dismissive of that. That say it, it, a lot of these are one-trick economies. It just boils down to their national champion commodity, and if they're not selling a ton of it, it's not like Peru has that strong and emerging, you know, lower middle class. Even though places do, Colombia does, the Philippines do. In this case, that if China truly sneezes, the rest of emerging market um catches a cold. And I'm thinking back to something that, again, I'm sure you're asked about is the rolling financial crises across emerging markets in the late 1990s, largely spared China. It was interesting that you saw it with mm. Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, and even emanating into Latin America. But China went on its merry way. Let me reintroduce you. Vivian Lynn Thurston is partner and portfolio manager at William Blair Investment Management, where her expertise is in emerging markets in China. She is a graduate of Peking University uh, back in the mid-90s. I look at something like the MSCI Emerging Markets Index, and a gigantic component is South Korea. Now, I wonder how you scratch your head and look at South Korea now versus 25 years ago. There's an argument that it's a developed economy. You look at Hyundai, Samsung, uh, the semiconductor markets there, various things that they export to the rest of the world. 
why are they still looked at as an emerging economy? I think if you there was a stat we had James Harmon of the Export Import Bank of the show on, and he said I believe one of the stats in his book was that if you go back to 1950, uh, South Korea was the size of Ghana in terms of uh, you know GNP, and that has been such a divergence if you think about it. But these indices are a little flawed. Uh, you go in there, uh, some of them are overloaded with China, some of them make short shrift of what might be called in your part frontier economies, smaller economies like the Philippines or Colombia. And it's been, it's been, I guess the mousetrap doesn't necessarily work if over 15 years it has only offered a sliver of what American blue chips have offered. This is a very good question. And then there are several small questions within this. Uh, so I will answer one by one. And first of all, MSCI, when they decide whether a country is in the EM index versus DM index, they look at several things. Uh, one is definitely about the level of GDP, per capita GDP, and their standard of living. Uh, and the other hand, they also look at uh, the composition of the economy. So specifically on that, uh, uh, Korea, South Korea probably has a little bit kind of mixed um, score, uh, but eventually I think the composition of the uh, industry probably way out, uh, make this country uh, become more of the still remain in the EM index. And so that's on South Korea. And then in terms of China, uh, China is a very heavy, heavy weight, uh, 30 plus percent in this uh, index. Uh, but that's not surprising given that China is the largest economy of uh, EM. And so I think that will stay a big part of uh, uh, EM index. So to some extent, uh, I think the MSCI EM index uh, is kind of um, a mix of all different type of uh, countries, whether China, whether India, whether South Korea or Taiwan. And that will stay as they are, uh, given that it does fit all that kind of criteria they look for about uh, emerging markets. And so in the last 15 years, EM as an index has underperformed the U.S. And actually, not only EM underperformed the U.S., and I think the DMXUS also underperformed the U.S. So I guess it's more about U.S. outperform rest of the world uh, quite substantially. Let me ask you, so this this decoupling from China right now, how are you looking at the situation in China right now? While it's not an economic decline, per se, in terms of recession or anything like a hard landing, you know, certainly a third of the close to 10% growth rate that the country has gotten so accustomed to, or close to double-digit annual economic growth rate over the last several decades, it's getting an outsized amount of attention in the United States that you could see uh, property defaults, bank defaults, and a whole financial crisis emerge out of uh, China's peculiar problems right now. What are you What are you seeing about that? What are you hearing? Yeah, China is facing a lot of uh, structural issues, and that's uh, been known to the markets for some time. Whether it's a property market bubble, whether it's high uh, corporate debt, uh, this has been a structural headwind that the economy has been facing for some period of time. And in some ways, probably got further exacerbated um, during the last few years uh, due to the COVID lockdown and COVID management. So I would say China currently is in a cyclical downturn. And then that's why we have to think about Chinese equity or Chinese economy from a more cyclical perspective. Historically, Chinese government tend to come up with counter-cyclical measures uh, whenever there's a downturn and try to smooth out the cycle. But this time around, we feel they probably less keen on doing massive stimulus package, uh, given that China economy is in this rebalancing phase, means that they need to balance the 
growth of economy and the structural reforms to address those structural issues I mentioned earlier. So on that backdrop, they're probably less willing to come up with stimulus, which could create more structural problems down the road, as they saw in the past. So in this case, we think uh, China will go through more a cyclical recovery phase. Therefore, the pace of recovery could take some time and the magnitude of recovery uh, can be more moderate than people expected. So that's how we kind of think about China uh, from the near-term perspective. But on a longer-term perspective, we still believe that China presents a good growth opportunities, especially from the bottom-up perspective. And this country still has a very strong middle-class consumption increase story uh, as more lower-income people get into the middle, uh, higher-income level. And then this country also continue to advance their technology, uh, whether in higher manufacturing, whether in uh, semiconductor or other uh, industries that they need more self-independence. And lastly, they are also leading on energy transition in some ways on the global level. So those opportunities will uh, still kind of present quite a good investment opportunities uh, from the bottom-up perspective. Uh, so that's why we still have a constructive view about long-term investment case for Chinese equities. Increase. How often are you asked to game out a true hard landing for China or a financial crisis? Not in my memory. Again, in the modern period, at least in the post-WTO, China ascension, China miracle century period since 2001, they have not had a hard landing by and large. They were able to forestall that coming out of the global financial crisis with significant New Deal type spending. How does it game out? How does it play out? There are those that argue that the United States, for example, would be on balance a beneficiary because you'd have tumbling commodity prices. Yeah, China never had a true hard landing uh, per se uh, in history, uh, given what I mentioned earlier that uh, the government tend to come up with counter-cyclical measures from time to time. And I think this time around, we probably already get some harder than history landing uh, as of now, given this prolonged COVID impact and also quite weak reopening path. But whether China will head to a hard landing remains to be seen. Uh, I do think definitely the cycle will be more acute than before on the on the downside. Um, so it's hard to to say, and also hard to define what a hard landing is. And I mean, empirically speaking, if the economy decline in terms of GDP decline, that's kind of a hard landing. Uh, but China GDP growth this year was still probably forecast. The consensus forecast is about one and a half percent. Uh, so to some extent, I would say that's still probably a more soft landing scenario. How do you even look at a Chinese bank, Vivian, if you're valuing it, if you're looking at something? When, and people, there are value investors out there that are saying you can buy Chinese stocks considering all the distortions and we don't know where the private sector ends and the government starts and it's the big hand of the government and it's thumb on the scale. How do you calculate, for example, the cost of capital or the bank or if certain toxic assets are on its balance sheet? There's so much opacity there. And it's one reason why the Chinese stock market, in spite of China's real economic miracle and strides, has, has been a backwater. It's been such a disappointment. Yeah, we have been staying away from especially state-owned enterprise uh, Chinese banks uh, in, in, in history. The reason is that exactly as you mentioned, that there's so much opacity about the balance sheet and the uh, income statement of those banks. And it's very difficult to assess the true financials and the economic health of those uh, banks. 
so, but Chinese banks is only one segment of the China economy. Actually, the composition and、uh, of the China economy become less actually coming from those、uh, those banks.、Uh, in the same time, we are seeing a much better run and much more market driven. Regional banks or municipal level banks—they are definitely more aligned with the Western countries' practice about managing the non-performing loans, managing the asset quality, managing their lending practice.、Uh, but overall, I think banking sector in China、uh, remains a, a difficult and challenging space. And the Chinese stock market has been disappointing recent times, and not necessary because of those banks. And this is actually largely driven by. Uh, the, a cyclical downturn, as I mentioned, as a reopening benefit is much lower, and the pace is is slower. And、uh, in the same time, I think the U.S.-China relations or geopolitical risks also play a factor here,、uh, given that the perceived risk to the Chinese equities have increased, and that impact the risk premium or discount rate of this asset class. Uh, therefore, we see China has been quite disappointing in terms of the、uh, equity asset class, and the economy also definitely more driven by the macro factors I、uh, mentioned above. I don't even know how you separate a nominally state-owned bank versus one that's that's adjacent to the state that might get you know preferential borrowing costs because people will look at it as being just you know almost like an arbitrage, like oh, effectively the the government is not going to let you go under. I mean, you know how difficult it would be if there were bank. Runs if there were people showing up at bank branches and there was unrest because we get back to the the you know the big compact post Tiananmen was that you can seek economic success and economic liberalization and freedom as long as you don't touch the the you know the unrest third rail. But what happens when these two cross? I asked Alex Fullwood of the Economist earlier. What happens? It's not just your garden variety slowdown or stock market crash over there or banking collapse where people are actually mad. There is arrestive youth. There's high youth unemployment. There's a demographic creep right now where, if anything, China would love for people to have three or four children apiece. How do they? How do they keep those spirits in the bottle? If you're kind of a command and control dictatorship, it is true that one of the key. Concerns or fears of、uh, Chinese government is about social unrest, and then we have seen in the past that when economic development or、uh, societal development under stress or were disappointing,、uh, you tend to see those kind of、uh, social unrest. So I think one of the biggest focuses of the government is to make sure the market is still growing, the economy is still growing,、uh, employment is still there. Uh, prosperity is still there, therefore,、uh, people won't be、um, unhappy and not lead to a bigger spillover kind of a, a social unrest issue. And you're right that now we see quite a high unemployment among the youth generation, and that it is a bigger issue. And I think the recent government narratives mentioned that they want to put that as one key focus、uh, to address a key focused issue. So we'll see what eventually going to come out of it,、um, but definitely the high awareness of that high unemployment among the youth、uh, reflects that they they do care about this spillover effect, and then as a result, they need to care about、uh, the economic health, the growth, and the development of the economy. On a more simpler level with economic development, and I wanted to close this off by asking you about you know looking internally in terms of forestalling this and having. Uh, uh, people feel like the economy can be kept together in China, but also coming out,、uh, Xi Jinping 
uh, earlier this week invoking the BRICS again, which is something I haven't heard in a while, Brazil, Russia, India, China. You'd think that was a very turn-of-the-century flavor. Uh, certainly, uh, Russia is off the rails. It's, it's, a, it's a pariah state now with what happened in the Ukraine. Brazil has had a bit of a lost decade. Uh, India and China have their own issues, and to a certain extent, Indonesia and South America are being invoked. What an interesting time for them to try to flex their prestige across an old emerging markets concept. Do you see what I'm saying? Uh, BRICS uh, is definitely a very old term. Uh, it's no longer a relevant term Relevant term at this point, in my view, coming to emerging markets, uh, given that all those countries, B-R-I-C-S, they are all different these days. And I would say um, some of them is no longer investable uh, and uh, or the investability has declined tremendously, like Russia, Right. And then on the other hand, Brazil uh, probably get better in recent times, um, but they also have their own maybe structural issue to deal with. And then they will continue to be this emerging face of that middle class and the economy. And India, definitely the brighter spot, uh, given that the con- country is going through a tremendous uh, structural growth story and also the near-term outlook remain very favorable, whether it's rising middle-class consumption and then increased demand for all types of services, financial services, mortgage, or even making India effort, which kind of uh, accelerate the country's infrastructural spending and manufacturing activities. So this is why India, I think, remain probably the the most interesting and attractive markets uh, in emerging markets. And China definitely has its own issue, as we talked before, both the cyclical issues, downturn, and also the structural issues. And then you layer that with a geopolitical uh, environment. So I would say there's a big divergence among uh, this uh, group of countries now. And then I don't think it's a relevant term these days to to look at emerging markets uh, from that angle or that kind of complex. Or Indonesia, Indonesia, which is increasingly invoked. Or I see once we we did a show and there was one with the next 11 included Nigeria and Iran. Even you get into the frontier, the bleeding edge of emerging markets, and you try to game out what would happen in the 20th century. I I personally covered Colombia in 2007, and that was a miraculous turnaround from it nearly becoming a failed state in 2002 to it becoming one of the top performing capital markets with an observance of rule of law and everything in South America. It clearly has its issue, as many other places do. And then some economies have this kind of predilection to go back towards strong men and dictators at this point. But I want to close by asking you, I know history rhymes, it's never a perfect analogy, but the last time we saw American valuations at this high coming out of the dot-com bubble in 2001, as you explained earlier, emerging markets went to have their kind of vindication decade versus the United States in, let's say, 2000 versus 2009. This has been a long dry spell uh, for individual economies, a basket of investments across developing economies. Are they are they super, I mean, what are the best things they have going for them other than that they're cheap right now? I mean, are there favorable demographics? Is, is money, are, are countries figuring out how to get their consumer classes revved, especially with China potentially being offline? Yeah, you hit a very good point about valuation. Uh, as we mentioned, that U.S. equities has outperformed rest of the world substantially in the last uh, 15 years and and also generated pretty strong outsized absolute return on an annualized basis. That has led to S&P 500's forward PE uh, get to a very high level, um, close to 
plus one standard deviation above the 10 year average, right? Um, so the debate would be what does that valuation look going forward? And then how does that valuation gap or premium versus the rest of the world or emerging markets gonna look going forward? So the other side is definitely emerging markets valuation has become uh, much more attractive than history. And then not only versus own history, also versus the US equities, uh, given that this asset class has derated uh, quite materially in recent times. So if you talk about investment one one, uh, uh, we know that valuation tend to mean revert. Um, but definitely the last 15 years, U.S. high valuation was also driven by the low interest rate environment and high liquidity I mentioned earlier. So if that factor um, continue to re- reverse, and I would think it's harder for U.S. equity to keep such a high uh, valuation level. And in the same time, EM equities probably won't stay at such a depressed valuation level. And that definitely uh, would provide pretty good support uh, for the EM equities uh, at this point. Vivian, I have to ask you before I let you go, what do you make of this Vietnamese EV maker, VinFast, that had such a breathtaking IPO that it's now worth more than Ford or GM? I mean, Vietnam, let's not forget Vietnam is a frontier market. You don't have liquidity. I mean, but that's one of the great things that you can list in the United States and tap the animal spirits of everybody's frenzy for things like Tesla or Rivian and others. But you must have watched that with a certain amount of curiosity. Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned about this uh, 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 Vietnamese EV company, uh, VinFast. Uh, they actually gather a tremendous interest during the recent IPO. Uh, this actually reflects a strong desire of global investors still for good growth or fast growth emerging country companies. Uh, so even though I would say that EM equities has underperformed the developed markets in recent 15, 10 years, especially led by Chinese equities, but I, I think the logic or desire by U.S. investors or global investors to go into EM equities remain unchanged, meaning that they are continue interested and attracted by high growth, uh, high return companies coming out of emerging markets. So the Vietnamese EV company is a great example of that. So that should reinforce, I think, our belief in emerging markets equities, which are predicated on our belief of the growth uh, of the improved return, uh, whether it's the middle class consumption growth or uh, technology advancement. Vivian Lynn Thurston, CFA and Partner, Portfolio Manager for William Blair's Emerging Markets Growth and China Growth Strategies. It was a joy to have you on. Please come back on. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan and Case Graham at Notterly. If you're catching us on the radio, note that while we often cut for broadcast link, the entirety of every interview is available on podcast. The link again, please subscribe, is FullDRadio.com. And you can follow along on all the socials at handle FullDRadio. A shout out to our listeners on Radio IQ, uh, down in North Carolina on WPVM and out in California on KPPQ. Message me if you'd like to carry full disclosure on your air. My DMs are always open. Stay tuned for big live events at the University of Richmond, including NPR Steve Inskeep, James Beard recognized chef Sonny Boesia, and Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. You can catch me every week on both MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week.